good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Well, tonight, please turn in your copies of the Word of God to Acts chapter 2. Um, we'll read together from uh, the verse number 22. Reading, of course, the words of uh, Peter in his sermon on the death of Pentecost. He says this, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden off it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because I will not leave my soul in hell, and neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life, and thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and the sepulchre is with us unto this day. And therefore, being a prophet, uh, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he will raise up Christ to sit in his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did seek corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Tonight we're moving on to consider more of what we're actually praying for when we take the prayer, Thy kingdom come upon our lips. Before we come to develop further what we're actually praying for, there are a couple of things that must be grasped before we can pray this prayer with full understanding. When we refer to the kingdom in this petition, uh, we should remember that it is the messianic kingdom that is in view. It is the kingdom of God's Christ. And I say that because we all understand that God is king over all things. God is eternally king. Psalm 47, for the Lord most high is terrible. He is a great king over all the earth. Psalm 103, the Lord has prepared his throne in the heavens and his kingdom ruleth over all. So not only is God king, but God has a kingdom that in the time of the Psalms, that king can be said to rule over all. Of course, it is an eternal, everlasting kingdom. Therefore, by virtue of deity, 
God is the only eternal king. And so when we're praying for the kingdom to come, we are praying for something, yes, underneath that concept of sovereignty, but that's somewhat distinct uh, in definition from it. When we're praying for the kingdom to come, we are thinking of the kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament. God was still king in the Old Testament, but he promises a kingdom yet to come. A kingdom that would come from one, the son of David, coming to reign upon a throne. We have that, of course, clearly seen in many of the Psalms. We have it actually here in Acts chapter 2 in the quotation of some of those Psalms, uh, like you have in the, the verse number 34, you have the quotation of the Psalm 110. Christ In the beginning of his ministry, as recorded by Mark, announces that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom promised has come in the coming of Jesus into the world and the apostles make it plain that Jesus has ascended to the throne as predicted. He's ascended to the throne of David. He's ascended to become the everlasting king. Look at Acts chapter 2, we read the section together, and you'll see in the verse number 29, there's a a reference to David being dead and buried. And yet, having just related, Peter having just related the promises to David, that there would be a son sitting upon the throne, Peter is making the point that David himself has not fulfilled that promise. But David, as a prophet, spoke of a coming Christ, verse 30, A Christ, a Messiah, that would sit upon his throne. Peter tells us, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, that David was foreseeing the resurrection of Christ. And just in case the Jews could wriggle out at the conclusion, he makes it clear that this Christ has a name above every name. Verse 32, his name is Jesus. And he, Jesus, who is the Christ, is in verse number 33, He's by the right hand of God exalted. And he is sitting, as it is, upon the throne, David's throne, in the verse number 30. So we see through the interpretation of Peter that the throne in view is the heavenly throne upon which Christ now sits as the son of David and as the king over his kingdom. It is this kingdom of Christ that is in view in our prayer. I think that's obvious. We're not praying for God to be more sovereign over all. God is already sovereign over all. And so we're praying for something that is in the realm of the kingdom of God's Christ. And so keep that in mind. We're praying for the messianic kingdom to come. And so we see in the second place, just by way of introduction again tonight, we we should see an important issue that's also there in the verse number 35. And that is that the kingdom of God's Christ, the kingdom of the Messiah, is a kingdom that has come, and yet is a kingdom that is still to come. Christ's reign upon the throne of David is a reign that has the end of all his foes being placed under his footstool. The kingdom has come with the coming of the king into the world. The kingdom, said Christ, is at hand. It is now come. It's come in the coming of the king. It's clearly come in the resurrection of the king to the throne of David. That's obvious. 
The victory was won on Calvary, yet there is still a future dimension. There's a not yet in the kingdom. It is yet to come in its fullness. The Lord himself looks to that future day in Matthew 26, where he speaks of the fruit of the vine. He will not drink until he drinks it. On that day, I will drink it anew with you in my, in my Father's kingdom. And so the fullness of the kingdom, the fullness of God's heavenly kingdom, will occur at the final appearing of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. That's also consistent with what we read back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Turn back there, please. 1 Corinthians 15. And there you will see a reference to an action of Christ that perhaps is not so often upon our minds as it ought to be. You have there in the verse number 24, Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. I think that's a very clear interpretation of the words back in Acts chapter 2. That Christ will reign until all his enemies are under his feet. And here we see, well, when does this occur? It occurs when the last enemy is destroyed, that is death. And there we have in the verse number 23, we have the explanation of when that occurs. Sorry, verse 22. But as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. There's a resurrection of the dead mentioned in verse number 21. So the kingdom, 2 Timothy 4 verse 1, synonymous with the appearing, is clearly seen to be the kingdom that is presented to God at the time of his appearing, namely Christ's coming and his resurrection, and the resurrection of his people. At which time the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. So there's still, I think, this future aspect. This now described as the deliverance of the kingdom to God. And then one last reference, and that's Revelation chapter 11. Mind you that it is often understood that Revelation has these cycles of seven. And when you come to the seventh in the cycle, you're coming to descriptions of the, the end of the age, the end of the world. And you have the seventh angel in verse 15 sounding. And there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So there's a distinction here. Christ shall reign until all enemies are put under his feet. But that, of course, does not signal the end of Christ's reign. It rather it signals the consummation of his reign, whereby he then reigns forever and ever with all enemies now under his feet. The kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Now the nations are angry. The wrath is come, the time of the dead that should be judged, verse 18. It's all language that describes this, this end of all things in the appearings, in the appearing and in the coming of Jesus Christ. And so this understanding, when you come to pray, thy kingdom come. Remember you're praying in particular for the, the messianic kingdom. You're praying for the kingdom of Christ. And you're praying for a kingdom that has come 
and yet has still a future fulfillment. And that, I believe, will help, understand, help you understand, well, in what sense are you praying after the cross, after the resurrection? In what sense are you praying for something where victory is won, Calvary, and yet there's still a future aspect for the kingdom? So you're praying for a development. If you like, the victory has been won, but there are skirmishes to fight as the kingdom is yet to be completed. And so I think when you then consider what you're praying for in this petition, you are, you'll be encouraged that you're praying the will of God in this petition. I think when you study it together, you will see uh, this week and literally next week, you'll see that you're, you're already praying for much of these things. This is one of the petitions that I, I, I think in this place we, we really pray through very well. Week by week, I, I commend you. I think you have a, a very clear grasp of what it is to pray for thy kingdom to come. And so in many ways, this will be a, a reminder, a, a refresher course in what we pray for as we pray for thy kingdom to come. But may it increase our assurance. Remember when you pray, when you pray God's will, God hears those prayers and answers those prayers. And so rightly understanding the prayer, thy kingdom come, I think will encourage us as we seek the face of God in this place week by week. Let me remind you again of the language of our shorter catechism, which says in the second petition, which is thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. So I want to, I really want to unpack that over the next couple of weeks. And tonight simply consider one thing that we are praying for when we pray thy kingdom come. And that is that when we pray thy kingdom come, we are praying, we're praying for the conversion of sinners. One thing we're praying for. We're praying in the language of our catechism that ourselves and others may be brought into the kingdom of grace. We're praying for the conversion of sinners. And let me begin by unpacking some of the doctrine that undergirds that particular statement. What is the doctrine that's taught in the word of God regarding the kingdom that would then lead us to pray in this fashion? Well, first of all, let me again remind you that entering the kingdom is synonymous with being saved. Turn back, please, of Matthew chapter 19. Gives us the account of the man we know as the, the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler is challenged regarding his, his love for, for God and love for Christ. And he's, he's holding on to his possessions and they are, they are keeping away from the Savior. And the Lord in verse number, uh, the Lord down in verse number 23, then gives a commentary as the young man goes away sorrowful. And the Lord says, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's going to be difficult. That's the sense of the word hardly there. It's difficult for the rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then the disciples, in verse 25, they then say then, Who then can be saved? You see the question? They don't ask, well, who then can enter in? They simply take the term saved as synonymous with entering into the kingdom of heaven. 
There's understanding here. The disciples who've walked with the Lord for some time now, they understand in all of the teaching of the kingdom that to be in the kingdom is to be saved and to be out of the kingdom is to be lost. It's really that simple. And so entering the kingdom comes through experiencing the gospel blessings. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, there's some very solemn warnings to the ungodly. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? And there's a list. Fornicators, idolaters, uh, adulterers, effeminate, abuse of themselves and mankind. All those things are listed. They shall not enter the kingdom of God. But such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And so to enter the kingdom... You must go by the way of the cross. Uh, by the work of the Spirit in your soul, you're then born again. And you, you come to the cross and you're justified by faith in Christ. And the blood of Christ washes you of your sins. Whereby through the gospel you enter into the kingdom. And so when Christ comes in Mark chapter 1 and preaches the gospel of the kingdom. He tells his hearers that you must Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom's at hand. It's coming. What is your response going to be, says Christ? It is that you would repent of your sin and believe in the Son of God and thereby enter the kingdom. Paul, in describing the experience of the believers in in Colossians chapter 1, thanks God the Father who hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. We're taken out of darkness and we are translated into the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God's Son. And so when you think about this matter of the kingdom, entering the kingdom is synonymous with salvation itself. And so you say to yourself, well, why are we praying for this? Well, it's obvious. We pray thy kingdom come because it's God who brings sinners into the kingdom. That's what's said here in Colossians chapter 1. It is the Father who hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. It is Christ who in John chapter 3 says, except you're born again, you can't see or enter the kingdom. It is the necessity of God's work for sinners to enter the kingdom. And therefore, when Christ says, pray thy kingdom come, he's encouraging disciples, he's exhorting disciples to pray for God to bring sinners out of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of God. It's obvious. There's no complexity here. We don't need to make this difficult. The doctrine undergirding this reminds us that we must pray for the conversion of sinners. Christ himself made it clear in the description of the parables that it is given to them to understand. Mark chapter 4 and verse 11, it says this, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. And so if we're Thinking this through, we remind ourselves that sinners, they're in rebellion to the king. That rebellion will show itself in different ways. 
But the unconverted are in rebellion to a king. And we shouldn't be surprised when that rebellion shows itself in outward sin. To begin with, perhaps uh, particularly amongst the young people, and good to have uh, young people here at the present time, uh, so often that rebellion is seen in a rebellion against the, the wise and judicious care of godly parents. There's a rebellion that drives and builds up within our hearts. If my parents are going to govern me in Christ's name, well, then I'm going to show my rebellion to the king and in my rebellion towards my parents. What they say, I'm not going to do anymore. It's a, it's a very insidious thing. And it can be in very simple things to begin with. And then it, it builds and builds and builds. And before you know it, that person is showing a very gross external sin in rebellion to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's a fact. Anybody who's been in this world for any time can think back to seeing that progress in the lives of teenagers as they make their way in rebellion out of the things of Christ. Into this world, they are rebelling against the king. And so sinners, if they are to enter the kingdom, must repent of that rebellion. And they repent of that rebellion by grace through the rebirth. And they, through the rebirth, come to trust in Christ. And then they're, they're cleansed of their sins. And God tells us here, Christ tells us in this prayer, Thy kingdom come. He's telling us to pray for the conversion of sinners. There are some who reason from the doctrines of grace that there is no place to ever pray for sinners to be saved. How do you pray for the salvation of sinners when you, you don't know those you're praying for if they're elect or not? Just in case you may pray presumptively, you shouldn't pray for sinners at all. You may be praying against the will of God. We have here in the Lord's own instructions a prayer that necessitates the praying for sinners to be converted. We're told to pray thy kingdom come. A vital aspect of that in the language of a catechism and in the word of God is an understanding that sinners must be converted. It must be our heart's desire. We're praying for God to do the work. It must be the habit of our praying. This prayer it comes in a very advanced place in the order of these prayers, these petitions. Under the overarching desire for the glory of God's name, there is this prayer, Thy kingdom come. It must be dominant in our praying. It must be dominant in our prayer lives. It must reflect our heart. Like the Apostle Paul, who could say in Romans 10, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Thy kingdom come. Coming out of a, a heart's desire, a burden, a hunger for souls to be saved. Underneath this prayer comes a prayer for revival. Don't just save one, save a multitude. May thy kingdom come rapidly in this present evil age. That's what you're praying for when you're praying for revival. This is, this is biblical, Christ-taught praying. And thus, this praying must be a reflection of our own hunger for souls. We will only really begin to pray, Thy kingdom come, and we have a burden, a burden for those who are out of the kingdom, that God would bring them into the kingdom for His name's sake and for His glory. 
I think of the Apostle Paul. And he who had a burden to pray for lost souls was the same one who, when he was uh, shut up in Rome at the end of Acts chapter 28, he was the one who expounded and testified the kingdom of God. What does he do? They come to visit him and he expounds and testifies the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus. You see, when we have a burden to pray for lost souls, we have also a burden to persuade lost souls. This is, this is biblical Calvinism. The understanding that, that only God can bring sinners into the kingdom. And yet the same understanding that reminds us that we pray for that to happen. And as we pray for that to happen out of our hearts, we also seek to persuade souls, persuading them concerning Jesus. I wonder how you're doing in this regard. How high on your priority list is this matter of praying for lost souls? In this area, in the mission field, wherever it might be, are you burdened in your soul to pray for those who are in darkness that they'd come into light? Because a reflection of our hearts will be seen in how burdened we are for these matters. In our praying for sinners and in our persuading sinners. For Christ, this is a priority. And may it be a priority in our lives. And just one last word, please. There are some of you who are here tonight and you're in a prayer meeting. Praise the Lord, you're in a prayer meeting under the word of God. I wonder, did you notice one thing in the petition that is given to us in our catechism? When we pray, thy kingdom come, we pray that ourselves and others may be brought into it. It is right and proper that if you want to pray thy kingdom come, the first person you should pray for is yourself. May Christ come and reign in my heart. Christ says pray, thy kingdom come. You're to pray for Christ to reign in your heart and you find yourself struggling with that. I don't want Christ to reign in my heart. I'm telling you now, you should pray to God. God, by your grace, may Christ reign in my heart. And you're praying, thy kingdom come in my own experience. I tell you, God will hear that prayer. The issue is, I don't think you want to pray that prayer right now. So may God help you by his grace. May God help you by his grace to see the importance of praying for God to save your soul. This is just the beginning. There's much more in praying for thy kingdom to come. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170. That's 610-993-3170. Or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified.